It is our last week in our Unoffendable series here. And we've spent the month of January talking about what it looks like to sacrifice your right to be offended. And today we're going to wrap up this series by talking about a biblical perspective on social justice. And that's where we're going to start. And, you know, it's been an interesting week to be planning a sermon on social justice. And it's, it's kind of funny how God arranges these things. And I think he's got a little bit of a sense of humor in doing this, considering I put this series together about two months ago. Well, this week gave us a lot to think about in social justice. Monday was Martin Luther King Day. And, and you, probably like me as well, if you're on Facebook, then you probably scrolled through Facebook and saw numerous quotes, um, interviews, videos, pictures about Martin Luther King Jr. And, and were inspired by some of his words. And so here are a couple of my favorites that I saw last Monday. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Yeah, all right. Okay? Or this one. This one. I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. And I love this. And I think few people captured this idea, like Martin Luther King Jr., uh, certainly few people in the modern era. And then if that wasn't enough to get you thinking, well, this happened this week. And it's been all over the news. And in case you've been living under a rock or in a coma for the last week, this is something that happened in Washington. Technically, this event happened about a week ago um, at the, the combination of a number of different rallies and marches in Washington. And at first, this story seemed very clear-cut, very simple. A racist white kid in a Make America Great hat was standing up and abusing a Native American elder activist. Seemed pretty cut and dry. But then it came out that the story was a lot more complex. It turned out minutes before this photo was taken, both of these groups, the teenagers and the Native Americans who were there, who were both being harassed by a, group of, a, a small group of black Hebrew Israelites. And then, um, and then Phillips, the Native American uh, activist here, stepped between the two groups to try to defuse the situation. So all of a sudden, what seemed quite simple, all of a sudden got a lot more complex. And that's, that's kind of the nature of social activism and social justice today. It is complex. See, this situation alone involved race, power, religion, age, politics, the media, and the court of public opinion. All of that came into play over the last seven days. And I think it beautifully captured how, what a complex mess the topic of social justice is these days. It is not simple. So what do you think? Think about social justice. When I say the words, what do you think about as the main goal of social justice. If you could boil it down to just one or two main ideas, ideologies, or actions, what comes to mind for you? Here's just a handful of possibilities. To educate whites on their own power and privilege. 
to identify and dismantle systemic racism in the government, education systems, or workplaces. Lobby for legislative and political change. Work for racial equity in our communities. Protest for Black Lives Matter or support Blue Lives Matter. Or care for people one-on-one -on -one who struggle with basic needs like food, shelter, safety. This list could go on and on. That's part of why social justice in today's world is so complex. There are so many different definitions, so many different passions, so many different answers to the question, what is social justice? It means different things to different people. And each, each person, the more passionate they are, the more they will argue that their thing is what social justice is. And then someone else will argue something totally different. It's complex. There is no simple answer to the question, what is social justice? But if you're a Christian, I hope there's another question you're, answer, you're asking. I hope there's another question that you're thinking about. What does the Bible have to say about social justice? See, this is the question that should at least be influencing your thinking, if not forming the foundation of your thinking. What's God's intention around social justice? And what did he give us in his word on the topic? Well, so today I want to talk to you about two biblical mandates of social justice. Now, I'm not saying this is all there is. Okay, please hear me. But these are two things that I believe are really irrefutable in Scripture. We see them consistently and predominantly all throughout Scripture. And it's it would be really hard for anybody to, to argue against these two key ideas because they're found so prominently. These are clear. These are undebatable. Now, of these two mandates... One of them you're going to like, and one of them you're not. Okay? One of them is easy to get behind. One of them is not. And for this, I'll, I'll briefly mention the first one, but I want to spend the bulk of my time on the second one. So let's talk about the first one. The first one is this. To care for the oppressed without hesitation. To care for the oppressed without hesitation. See, this is a command that we see all through Scripture and all through the history of the Christian church. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded repeatedly to care for widows, orphans, and the foreigners among them. When they were failing and turning away from God, God used this same accusation, this same command against them and saying, you are far too concerned about religious rituals and you are ignoring the poor, the widows, the orphans, the foreigners among you. It is a constant theme through the Old Testament. Why these groups? Think about it. Why these? Because quite simply, these are the groups that were least likely in their culture to be able to provide for themselves. These were the, the people, the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners among them. These were the people most likely to be taken advantage of by people in power. Quite simply, these were the oppressed. 
In the Old Testament, we, the Israelites were commanded over and over again, care for them, protect them, provide for them. In the New Testament, Jesus talked a lot about providing for the poor and the needy. He, he called them the least of these in one of his famous parables. Whatever you have done for the least of these, you've done to me. And heck, even most of the stars of Jesus' stories, they were women, children, foreigners, the disabled. All the lower segments of that society, Jesus lifted up over and over and over again. And then the Christian church continued this tradition and has done ever since. We see it in Acts. We see it in Paul's letters. And ever since, the, the Christian church has been fundamental in caring for the poor and needy. In fact, throughout history, the Christian church has been the largest provider of social services, health care, and education in the history of the world. The church, Christians have done that. Now, th that's, why, that's why our community engagement program here focuses on feeding the hungry, caring for the homeless, providing for refugees, serving children. And that's what we will continue to do because that's what the Bible tells us to do. And, and no matter what else more we do, we will always focus on caring for the poor, the needy, the widows, the orphans, the, the foreigners among us. Because that's what God commands Christians to do. Now, I know that's, that's a really fast overview. It's really quick. You'll hear more about this next week, as Alicia Told, told you, come back next week to invite you back to learn more about how we as a church serve these populations and how we live out God's command to care for the oppressed without hesitation. Now, I know that was really quick. If you want to learn more, I actually preached a couple sermons on this a couple years ago in a series, part of a series called Love Local. It's on our website. It's in our app. Um, I'll post up on Facebook later today. Um, but I did a whole sermon on what I just talked about over five minutes. So you can hear all kinds of more details about that. But I wanted to talk about the second one. Because this one is harder. This one's a harder sell. The first one, everyone can get behind caring for people in need. You've got to be a pretty cold-hearted person not to want to care for someone, not to want to feed someone who's hungry. But this one, this one is hard. And you're not going to like it. It feels impossible. It goes against everything in us. And it certainly goes against the, the modern social justice movement. Are you ready? Because once you see it, you can't unsee it. You can't pretend that it's not there. And you can't pretend that, that it's not part of God's heart. And it's quite simply this. Love the oppressor beyond expectation. Love the oppressor beyond expectation. This is exactly opposite the thinking of today. 
Today, oppressors should be punished. They should be removed, vilified, ridiculed, publicly shamed, even threatened with death. That's what oppressors deserve. And that is the message you see over and over and over again. You, you hear it in the news. You, you read it in people's statements. You see it on Twitter. That's the message today. That oppressors deserve everything that can be thrown at them and more. But that's not what God says. That is not what the Bible teaches. They should be loved? No way. But it's exactly what the Bible says. And so we're going to turn. We're, whoop, my apologies. So we're going to turn to Matthew. We're going to look at Matthew 5, a very famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount. And this Sermon on the Mount, this is, this is a sermon. Oh, did we just lose? Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, that this is a sermon that Jesus gave that redefined what living in the kingdom of God meant. When Jesus came, he ushered in the kingdom of God. He began it. And then the Sermon on the Mount was his defining sermon about what it looks like for believers to live in the kingdom of God. And in this, he used a pattern. For much of it, he used a pattern where he said, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. You've heard, you've heard this said, but I tell you this. It would introduce a piece of Old Testament law or statement, and then he would completely flip it on its head. He would say, you can't just stop there. In the kingdom of God, it is bigger. Life is bigger than simply the rules that you've grown up with. So let's start with Matthew 5. You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, let's talk about this eye for an eye thing. Because, so this was part of the Old Testament law. It was also part of the law of many other countries in the ancient Near East. Uh, we can see it in the, the Code of Hammurabi, the very famous legal document that was found. Non-Christian sources. So this was a common law and practice. And it was part of the Mosaic law that God gave the Israelites. Now to us, and the way we've seen this played out in TVs and movies, this sounds like a statement of, of revenge and vengeance. See, it sounds like something out of John Wick. Right? Eye for an eye. You killed my dog. I'll kill 77 of you. True number, check it. Okay? Seriously, I mean, that's how it's used in every single movie. It's, it's a statement, it's a, it's a declar declaration of vengeance. Okay? But this statement, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, this principle was not meant to encourage vengeance. It was actually meant to restrict vengeance. It was put in place to say, you can't go all John Wick on someone. That's the exact purpose of this law, is to stop that from happening. And I can clarify it with, by adding one simple word. Only an eye for an eye. That's justice. Anything above that is vengeance. 
But an eye for an eye is justice. It is fair and right and just. So this was actually a law promoting justice. So you could reread this as you've heard it said, pursue right justice. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. So from the, from the first verse here, Jesus sets out, if all you're doing is pursuing justice, you are not living in the kingdom of God. There is so much more than simply justice. Now, every time he uses this formula, he's not saying, he's not denying the first one for the second. He's saying you can't stop at the first one. It's so much bigger. There's so much more to life in the kingdom of God than just justice. Now, what does it mean to not resist an evil person? Well, he explains himself. He gives three examples that follow. And here it is. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, hand them over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. That's what it looks like to not resist an evil person. Now, the Jews in that time were under Roman occupation, which sort of means they weren't exactly slaves, but they weren't exactly free. They were under Roman rule. They paid taxes to Rome, and they paid taxes to their own uh, system of government. But they were occupied by a foreign country. So however bad you feel oppression is in this country, and I acknowledge there are plenty of places of oppression and racism in this country, but however bad you feel it is here, this is nothing compared to the ancient Near East. What the Jews lived under every day. They were literally owned by another people. They did not have their own freedom. And that's what Jesus was speaking into. Imagine that for a sec. Imagine Jesus telling Jews to not resist the evil Romans. That just sounds ludicrous. Now, these three things that he commands, there's some debate around the cultural nuances of each of these situations, but I think the message is really clear. Whether you've been slapped, sued, or forced to walk a mile, you don't retaliate. In fact, even more, you go beyond what is asked of you. You go beyond what is commanded of you. For instance, one of the Roman rules was that a, a Roman soldier could ask any Jewish civilian to carry their pack for one mile. They could just walk up to you, dump their pack on you, and force you to walk a mile. Now, they couldn't force you to walk more. That would be against the law. But it was legal for them to do that. And Jesus says, you know what? When they ask you to do that, you walk a second mile. You keep walking. Someone slaps you once, you let them slap you again. If someone wants to take your shirt, you give them their, your coat. 
go above and beyond. That's the message here. Christians should be beyond expectation people. Not just when it's good and easy, but when it's hard and miserable and angry. That's when we need to be beyond expectation people. When we want to retaliate, when we want to shut down, when we want to speak badly of someone, we don't just not go there. We go the whole other direction. That's what life in the kingdom of God is. Now, in case you're, you're, you're not sure about this, you're sort of on the fence, you're not quite buying this so far, he continues. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Think about that. Think about, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Isn't that the message today? That message is as prevalent today as it was 2,000 years ago. And whether it's Montlumont, whether it's Democrats versus Republicans, whether it's death to white nationalists, no matter what it is that we hear, it's this same thing. Love the people you like, hate the people you don't. Hate the people you disagree with. And Jesus says, no way. That is not how it works in the kingdom of God. That's how it works in the world. But not in the kingdom of God. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to pray for the people that persecute you. Think about it. Jesus was telling Jews to love Romans. Jesus was telling Jews to pray for the people that oppressed them. Think about that. That is so countercultural. As much today as it was back then. When was the last time you prayed for someone you hated? Not just disliked, not someone who asked you to pray. No, prayed for someone you hated. Think about it. Someone whose, whose actions or ideologies just make you want to vomit. When was the last time you prayed for that person? So I'm going to show you some pictures. What's the first thought that comes to mind when you see these men? Is it love and prayer? And I'm not talking about I'd love for them to get hit by a bus. And no, it's not, I pray for their eternal damnation. <laughs> no, 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 no. Love and prayer. That's what Jesus is saying. That we, if you are a Christian, you are, part, you are living out the kingdom of God right now. And in the kingdom of God, we love serial rapists and murderers of unarmed black men and entitled rich white politicians and angry racists. These are the people that we love. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to support them. But you have to love them. And you have to pray for them. See, 
And now, before you start wanting to throw me under the bus, okay, love does not preclude justice. Let me say that again. Love does not preclude justice. I am glad that Bill Cosby, one of my childhood favorites, I'm glad that he was rightly arrested and sent to prison. I was horrified by Brock Turner's paltry prison sentence. That was unjust. Love doesn't preclude justice, but it has to precede it. If your desire for social justice is not preceded by love and prayer, then it's coming from the wrong place. Love does not preclude justice, but it has to precede it. Your desire for justice must come out of a place of love, because if it's not, it's coming out of a place of hatred and anger and self-righteousness. Now, he gives two good reasons why you should love your enemy. First, the first is because God does. Listen to this. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. So sun and rain were seen as blessings from God. And if God gives blessings, sun and rain, to the good and the evil, he shows love in that way to the good and the evil. Who are we to love some and hate others? Who are we to say, like if it were up to us, let's be honest. We'd give rain like to all the non-racist farmers. And then let all the racist ones starve and die. I mean, come on, that's exactly what we would do. We would be Jim Carrey as God. We would make terrible gods. But God is not like that. God gives rain and he gives sun to the good and the evil, the just and the unjust. God loves them both. Now, he gives a second reason. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Tax collectors were really looked down on people, okay? In case you didn't get that from context. D don't even tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans or non-Christians do that? I love the statement, what are you doing more than others? If you're a Christian, you should be doing something more than others. And that something should not be hating on people. It should be loving, praying, extending grace, wanting mercy. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was all about redefining the people of God, living out the kingdom of God. And he says, to do that, you have to be different. You can't do what the rest of your non-Christians, non-believers are doing. You can't simply do what your culture says is right to do. You can't simply do what your family has taught you is right to do. 
You have to do what God wants you to do. And that is doing more of something. Going beyond expectation. Loving people who deserve scorn. Praying for people for, who deserve disdain. You've got to do more. You've got to be different. And this, I think, is one area where the modern American church has completely failed. And unfortunately, the Hmong churches came right along in that one. That was one I wish the Hmong churches hadn't learned from the American churches. Is that churches, instead of being the most loving, grace-filled, unoffendable people on the planet, churches are filled with judgmental, critical, grudge-holding, hard-hearted people. River life will not be like that. River life is not like that. And we will not be like that. And if that is you, you better bring that to Jesus or head out the door. Because that is not how river life will be. We will be a group of people that goes above and beyond in love, in grace, in prayers. We will be a, a church filled with people who care for the oppressed without hesitation and love the oppressor beyond expectation. And in that, we will be living out the kingdom of God here on earth. In doing that, we will model to a world that is so far away from this that there is an alternative. There is an alternative to hatred, there is an alternative to public shaming and ridicule and vilification. There is an alternative, and it's found in Jesus Christ. Now, at this point, you are probably sitting in one of three camps. You're probably sitting in one of three camps. So, first, some of you might be feeling very defensive. Maybe you work in the social justice sphere. And you feel that I'm belittling what you do. Please hear me. That could not be further from the truth. Keep doing what you're doing. For those who work or volunteer in the social justice sphere, keep fighting for justice in this city, in this state, in this country. God knows how much sin there is. In this country. How much of this country was built on and built around white people? And how much of this, this country benefits? And it was built by white men for white men. And how much people of color suffer on a daily basis because of that? God knows that and we know that. So please don't stop what you're doing. But check your heart. Make sure that you are coming out of a place of care for the oppressed and love for the oppressors. If you're not there, allow the Holy Spirit to transform your heart a little bit. Allow God to come on in and start massaging you a little bit. Changing that heart of yours 
to align it with the kingdom of God. But keep doing what you're doing because you are doing work that God loves and supports. Just make sure you're doing it for the reasons God loves and supports. Second, some of you just don't want to do this. You might agree with it. You just don't want to do it. Some of you like your anger too much. Some of you have lived with your self-righteousness for so long, you can't imagine living without it. It gives you a sense of power. It reaffirms your rightness and another person's wrongness. It, ju it justifies your disdain or even hatred for another person, another group, another race, another political party, and you want to hold on to that because it gives you a sense of power. Now, if that's you, God is calling you to soften your heart, to lay down your weapons of anger and self-righteousness and lift up empty hands to God to say, God created me a new heart. Renew a right spirit within me. And if you disagree with this, you're not, you're not disobeying me. You're disobeying God. Now third, the rest of you, the rest of you are probably feeling this idea. You like it. This sounds good, but it feels impossible. It feels impossible. And you know what? You're right. It is impossible. Us, in our strength, by ourselves, on our own, this is impossible. This is a standard we cannot meet. That's why we have to rely on the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit resides in you. That is God's gift and that is God's seal and his promise to you as a follower of him. And you have to let go of some of the things you're holding on to. You've got to open up some of the rooms that you've kept closed and let the Holy Spirit in. You've got to open up some of your heart and let the Holy Spirit have more of you. Only then can he empower you to do what you cannot, which is care for the oppressed and love the oppressor. We can't do this. None of us can. And this is allowing the Holy Spirit to empower you. Not about working harder, being better. No. This is about giving up and letting God control that part of you. So I want to close out our unoffendable series by saying two things. So first, and the, both of these are things you've heard me say over the last few weeks. First, imagine if Christians were the most unoffendable people on the planet. Imagine if you were the most unoffendable person in your family. Imagine if River Life, imagine if we were known as the most loving, 
grace-filled, unoffendable church in the Twin Cities. Think about that for a moment. That's the kingdom of God here on earth. Now, the second is this. Does it feel too hard? Yes. And you think to yourself, I'm only human. No. If you are a believer, you are not only human. You are not just human. You are a redeemed, transformed, supernaturally empowered force for good in this world. Never forget that. And if you are not a Christian, if you are not a believer, all of that is waiting for you when you say yes to God. You can be transformed. You can be redeemed. You can be supernaturally empowered to be a force for good in this world. The church needs that. This country needs that. We need that. So go be unoffendable by the power of the Holy Spirit. Join me in prayer. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you don't treat us like we treat others. God, we thank you that you loved us first while we were still sinners. And you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to take up all of our sin and in exchange to give us his holiness. God, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who is the only one by whom we can do any of this. God, let us be beyond expectation Christians. Let us build your kingdom. Let us live out your kingdom here on earth, your kingdom here in this church, your kingdom here in our families. Let us be supernaturally unoffendable, different than anything in this world, to show anyone who's looking, God, that you are more powerful than the forces of this world. Lord, we lay ourselves down. We lay our weapons down. We lay our pride down. We lay our self-righteousness down. We put it at the foot of the cross. We give up those tools of the enemy because they cannot give us freedom. Help us walk in the light, Lord. Help us love beyond expectation. Help us be unoffendable in the face of everything around us. And let us love gloriously. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins so that we could be unoffended. And we thank you for Jesus. Amen.